Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Sam and Alex from 12 Rules for What, which I, I can't say without automatically playing in my head the drop. So <laughs> we've, had, we've had a few people comment about how excellent the drop is, and we can only say it only goes downhill from the drop when you finish <laughs> our podcast. Yeah, it begins very well, I will say, as a podcast, and then real sharp decline from that point onwards. So uh, I don't think so. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us what is 12 Rules for What? So 12 Rules for What, as the name suggests, started in a very different place from where it is now. So at the moment, it's a podcast about fascism, the far right, anti-fascism, and so on. And it started actually slightly strangely as a reading group for Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, which I now find, having said the words 12 Rules for What, lots of times in my life, very difficult to say. So 12 Rules for Life, which is of course this book by Jordan Peterson, it's basically a self-help manual. And we're going to basically do a reading group and we're going to publish it online. And that idea uh, didn't seem to kind of grasp what was really like fundamental or what was really troubling about Jordan Peterson's work. And so I think we kind of expanded our, our, you know, our kind of our ambits and uh, moved towards the uh, increasingly kind of scary looking in late 2018 um, far right groups that were operating in the UK. So that was Generation Identity UK and other groups kind of of uh, kind of a similar identitarian ilk. And then we discussed groups around them, and you know, we kind of we looked at how, what was in the kind of the far right scene in that 2018 2019 period, and. Since 2020, of course, things have been you know, accelerating with the pandemic, but also with uh, the far right. So I think we've kind of um, both expanded what we're doing. And also we've tried to synthesize all those quite disparate takes that we had in the podcast through 2018, 2019, 2020 into a book, which is coming out very shortly, called Post-Internet Far Right. And we've also written a second book, which is about uh, eco-fascism, the idea of eco-fascism, and that's coming out. Uh, in February next year. So, yeah, that's what we've kind of been doing. That's kind of the scope of the project. You've written a second book. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, writing one book is already raising, you know, the expectations for podcasts about anti-fascism way too high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, step up, guys. Come on. <laughs> so the book is Post-Internet Far Right. It's out through Dog Section Press shortly. Yeah. I guess just to begin with, uh, what is the post-internet? I thought we were still on the internet. The post-internet refers not to the point at which we've left the internet. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, we are on the internet. We are on the internet right now, in fact. Don't want to surprise you too much. But we are on the internet. Post-internet refers to the period in which it's no longer kind of remarkable that things happen on the internet. 
right? So in the in the nineteen nineties, you get these this very clear distinction between real space, cyberspace, as they they call it then. And then there's a sense of a real clear partition. The internet has this very separate world into which we can go, and when we go in there, everything has changed. And then, of course, these two things merge. There is the rise of social media apps uh, from the kind of late noughties through to the current present, I guess. And there is a kind of convergence of the two. The, the two kind of blend over each other. So it's not that we, and at that point, and I think definitely in 2020, when more or less all of life kind of shifted online because of the pandemic, at least in uh, you know, where we are in the UK, I imagine it's different in, in Australia, at least where, in, in that sense, there was a kind of a shift online. And it became, I think, actually even a few years before that, unremarkable that things would happen on the internet. You say, okay, well, I'm going to this thing. Oh, where is it? And then you just like send someone a link as opposed to saying it's in this location physically in the world. And in that, in that sense, there's a kind of a, there's a shift of where in some ways the default space of social action, the default space of social action is no longer in the street, in the bar, you know, in the, um, in the kind of meeting place, right? Physically, the default space of social action is now online. And that's quite kind of an important shift, I think. And that's what we mean by the post-internet the point where it's no longer remarkable things happen online. I suppose it's, it's possible that um, Jordan Peterson would not have achieved the degree of success and popularity he has uh, absent the internet. Just to return briefly to the kind of, I guess, origins of uh, 12 Rules, so what, what do you think it says that uh, someone like him can become uh, so popular and how does his ideology relate to the broader currents that you examine in the podcast? I think with Peterson, I think it's it's interesting, and it's interesting how he's now kind of faded from discourse, if not from his like fan base. He kind of spoke at a very, he came about in a very particular moment when the right was and the far right was increasingly uh, interested in issues of culture and uh, pushing kind of a a, a coarsening and a, a, a more caustic online culture as well. And he was kind of perfect for that particular moment. And he spoke in a time we need to recognize the context of, of when he became prominent. We'd had the new atheist kind of online phenomena uh, that was kind of fading a little bit. We had just about the time when the alt-right was picking up and we had this and it's kind of prefiguring a lot of the discourse we have around trans issues as well. Uh, he was like the, uh, the first prominent intellectual anti-trans figure in my view. And so he came along at a particular moment, and he's also fading at a particular moment as well. I think, which is now, he, he, he got it. He got it. He was a particular character and a particular personality suited to that moment. I think. Yeah, he was. Um, I think he's a. The reason for his rise, in part, is connected to one of the things we discussed in the first chapter of the book, which is on what we describe as fascist feelings. Fascist feelings is like how. So the question is, how does capitalism make people in such a way as they might become fascists? Right, that's the kind of question we're trying to answer in that book. And we outline the kinds of people who become fascists. And overwhelmingly, who become fascists are, are men. And we think about what is that is the kind of particular feelings of failure, feelings of destitution, of being kind of washed up in the world, which Jordan Peterson and the far right speak to. I, I don't want to say that Jordan Peterson is like a Nazi or a fascist or anything like that. I don't think that's true. I don't think he's like particularly extreme. He's actually very conventional in lots of ways. He's banal. That's his real danger rather than being extreme. But he is obviously detrimental to uh, the cause of trans rights and so on, as Alex was mentioning. But I think in particular, Jordan Peterson and the far right both speak to this very particular form of masculine failure that became very prominent and very important in culture throughout the aftermath of the great financial crisis. As 
inequality heightened, the myths of what men were supposed to be doing in society, what they were supposed to be able to achieve and so on, were kind of finally trashed completely by the economic situation. And therefore, there's a kind of a something very raw and powerful emerges in that moment. In the same way, although obviously it's kind of a important or kind of um, helpful, I think, in some ways to compare the two, in the same way as something raw and hurtful emerged for young German men in the aftermath of the First World War. Right? Like, that's a, obviously an extreme comparison. And I think the extremity of the comparison is also quite useful to show just how comparatively sort of mundane or quotidian or kind of everyday the failures are that the far right speaks to now compared to the failures that the far right spoke to in the 1920s and 30s. The other thing about Peterson, just quickly, and going back to your original question a little bit, was that he was an absolute content machine. Like he, yes. <laughs> uh, he was, he was there for the, he was right for the moment, but he also, you know, he had these live streams. His initial competition went viral on YouTube. He recorded all his lectures and cut them up into helpful little chunks of people to get through very quickly. Um, he's raking in a bunch of money on Patreon, a, really a lot of money on Patreon. And so he, he played his hand really, really well as well. Um, his popularity also seemed to suggest that he speaks to a real need. And I guess as a psychologist, in some ways, what he's addressing is precisely feelings and the feelings of young men being alienated from the, the broader society and so on. How do you relate those kinds of feelings, which might be, I guess, thought to be, you know, belong to the private domain, to the public spectacle of fascism as a, as a social movement? I think that one of the kind of the, the other things we touch on in the book, um, yeah, a chapter mostly called Metapolitics and Aesthetics is the question of whether or not this distinction between the private domain and the public domain is scrambled by the internet. I think it really is. It used to be the case that people's politics were quite invisible. Right? Um, you had to uh, get to know that person, and then maybe they would tell you something about what they believe politically, you know, uh, after you'd met them maybe three or four times, something like that. Right? So there's a, kind of a, there's a convention in which like, politics is quite like a private thing, but you know, part, partially this is because politics for, in the neoliberal period is very uh, milk toast by and large. So there's a sense in which politics is private. But what the internet does, I think, is, is produce enforced publicity or enforced publicizing of one's beliefs. And the kind of dynamics around that produce both much more explicit support for, for left-wing causes and much more explicit support for right-wing causes as well. And so I think it's not, it used to be the case that politics was a private matter. That would nevertheless determine, of course, the shape of the public sphere and so on. But I think that increasingly it's not that the two things have been just collapsed or pulled together or kind of conflated in the period of the internet, but the two are kind of scrambled in lots of different ways. Lots of different forms of publicness have appeared. Lots of different forms of privateness have appeared. And politics is all over that. Is that an answer to the question? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I think so. I guess I'm also thinking about the ways in which these sorts of processes, how they relate to the kind of collapse in you know, the labour movement, for example, in uh, Australia and UK and elsewhere, and the absence of other forms of, I guess, uh, political opportunities. The, the political opportunity yeah. structure has been kind of, um, you know, much reduced. At the same time, you have figures like, I guess, in the UK, if not in Australia, uh, figures like Jeremy Corbyn appearing, mm -hmm. and they seem to be able to act as a kind of a dynamic force to some extent that, that brings, you know, uh, especially young people, I guess, who have experiencing exploitation and, and so on and so forth. And yet that too has collapsed, it seems. And the Labor Party rendered, you know, more or less inert as far as I can tell in yep. the UK and certainly substantially in Australia. 
I guess from a, a, an anti-fascist and a left perspective, do you think there's still, what, what kinds of opportunities do you think this uh, post-internet, so to speak, age affords the left? Is it is it more conducive to fascism or is it just likely to generate anti-fascist opposition? Well, I, th- I think the Corbyn example is an interesting one. And I think you can compare him to, in, to Trump in many ways, not for his politics, of course, um, but for the way that he entered into a quite staid political scene. And there was a certain section of young internet of the young internet population who uh, was very excited by him and kind of organically, but also like organized um, around him and got behind him. And in order to disrupt what had been the convention for a good few decades now. And the, the, that Corbyn project obviously collapsed in failure and we're all feeling quite, uh, you know, like what's going to happen next. But it points to the fact that things can happen out of left field. And it, it, I think the, the thing we emphasize at the end in the conclusion of the book is that things are completely up for grabs. Like the internet does not, um, or the current moment does not, I don't think particularly is conducive one way or the other. It's up for contestation. And that's the, the hope that I get out of it is that it's dependent on us to be organizing. It's dependent on, you know, a great many things, but it's not like there's no inevitability here. There's no inevitable slide into ego fascism or fascism or the far right or whatever. There is, um, there's a, there's a great the thing about this time in particular is that it's all very, yeah, very up in the air. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Sam and Alex from 12 Rules for What about the far right. One of the things you address in the book is that uh, in addition to uh, existing trends or within the far right, there's also this sort of new one of the, the p- person who is blackpilled or siegepilled. I guess I was wondering, I mean, siege is a text that has been around for around 30 years, but it only seems of late that it's become such an issue. Why is, why is this pill such a slow release? So I think that there are a couple of different things here. Um, I think something goes back to uh, what you mentioned a moment ago about the about the, the failures of political opportunity or the, the, the blockages of political opportunity, which is that as the, 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 in, in society in general, there is no longer the kind of strata of political organizations that absorbs the various kinds of political impulses that people have. Right? There's just no longer this kind of thing. As you were saying, there's, there's no labor movement. There are also no large scale conservative parties, for example. I mean, there never really were. That's not really how conservatism operates. But I don't know, there, aren't, there aren't those parties either. So people who are on who are right wing, who are on the far right, don't have any of these kind of stable organizational structures to join. Even the things that look fairly stable and fairly broad, for example, things like the various movements that Tony Robinson was able to kind of steer in the 2010s, the EDL, um, and then later other kind of street movements as well. Even those movements are actually composed not so much of a a membership base with like a kind of a, a set of structures that allow people to be absorbed into a political life more generally, but are actually composed almost entirely just of like a kind of an audience for a single figure. And so in some sense, you have to see the blackpilled, which is obviously these people, these terrorists, these kind of extremists, you have to see those people as actually kind of a, quite a natural consequence of the failure of the more conventional far right to be, construct membership organizations, to allow people to express their political beliefs in, in various other ways. I'm not advocating, of course, that people join more conventional fire organizations um, in order to not kill people. That's not what I think should happen. But I think there's a, the, 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 one, of the, one of the things we try to do in the book is, is not just kind of focus on like, oh, there are these evil people and they do these evil things. 
but that there is a whole dynamic here of different organizations and the failure in one part produces this failure over here or the success of this kind of one strategy tends to run into its own limits and so on. And so in a sense, give a kind of an appearance or give a sense of the, the dynamism of the far right, I think. So yeah, when we think about the Blackfield, we also have to think about the mass street movements that are doing nothing more violent than, you know, nothing more kind of extreme than arguing for what the state already does. The other thing about um, Sikh in particular and why uh, a lot of these quite radical uh, extreme uh, extreme right wing texts are being kind of rehabilitated by you know modern contemporary far right and fascist people online is that this is something to do with the internet and the way it archives a lot of content and makes it easily accessible to a lot of people when in the in the nine in when when the unabomber to make a reference um was trying to get his manifesto published he had to go to the new york times and he had to threaten a bunch of stuff to, in order to get his uh, manifesto out to a bunch of people and what we've seen here with the in this moment is that it takes one person to upload siege in pdf format and then it can be copied and copied and copied and referred and linked to and we see this another with the um the the manifesto of the the christchurch shooter uh, uh, within five minutes of the attacks uh this manifesto was pinging around the internet and being shared and copied and and was consequently read by you know millions of people so it's just a factor of the means of communication have changed so so much is that people can rescue and rehabilitate these kind of forgotten tracks you know people get very into julius avola you know who Mm. at one point was you know you could find in like dusty spiritualism sections of secondhand bookshops and now is you know passed around in reading list um, far right uh, you know extreme reading lists and things like this I can say what well, say one more thing about the uh, the the spread of this kind of siege pill idea. But if we look at the kind of nineteen thirties and nineteen twenties, there's propaganda, of course, and there's very extreme propaganda. But there's also a very clearly defined mechanism by which that propaganda will get to its audience, which is essentially um, as soon as the Nazis are in power, right? It's the Nazi state. So these these kind of enormous films, Triumph for the Will, and so on, blah blah. These films are all distributed by the Nazi party. But now. Propaganda of various different forms, so books and videos and whatever, is distributed not by some sort of central organization, but through networks. And because it's distributed through networks, it relies not just on its proponents to distribute it, but also on various kinds of dupes. People who share things in order to describe or in order to emphasize how horrible they are. And all this does is simply propagate the things further through the network. And so I think extremity in this situation becomes a very attractive thing for the far right. Because that is simply what propagates through the network. So if you can produce like really kind of horrible looking images, rah, you know, there, there's a thing called um, Terror Wave, which is a particular aesthetic style, which you might have seen some images of black, white, and red images, often with kind of uh, neo Nazi kind of laser eyes, holding AK 47s, swastikas, you know, some arounds, um, very kind of jagged text and so on. It looks like kind of a, a metal band from uh, the 1990s. Uh, 1990s. That, that aesthetic is designed not just in order to kind of scare people and be kind of creepy, but to be propagated through the network. And that's its basic main function. That's so why I think extremity emerges from network dynamics because it's more exciting to share. Well, speaking of the distribution of this sort of content, I wonder if I could get a hot take on a news item from you both. Uh, Joshua Sutter of uh, the Temple of Blood and Order of Nine <laughs> Angles. Uh, you just mentioned that organizations are not really involved in distributing this stuff, but there is one organization that uh, helped some of his material get out there, which was the FBI. It's just been revealed yeah. that he was a federal informant and quite a well-paid one. Uh, what did you make of all of that? 
I mean, the FBI does what the FBI does, you know. <laughs> with, with, with the, the FBI, I mean, it's well established that um, the FBI has like been in, involved in uh, or very close to a bunch of um, like Islamic terror plots in quotation marks, uh, where their their kind of informants have been, you know, very close to or pushing along often vulnerable Muslim men to plan attacks, whether they follow through with it or not. It doesn't matter as long as they're preparing for it, and. Uh, we we have seen uh, the right, the far right, become uh, a, an object of interest, especially in the wake of uh, the, the kind of more spectacular terrorist attacks that we've seen, but also after the Capitol Hill riot and things like this. Uh, and the, the FBI, I think, is simply applying the tactics of one on, of one group on one group to another, in my opinion. And it's it's what they do, and it's um, uh, completely unsurprising. Yeah, I mean, so. Uh- uh, the leader of the Proud Boys, the current leader of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio. Is he still the leader? I'm not sure. Uh, he was an FBI informant as well. So I think these things are quite kind of rife in the far right. Why do I think it happens? I mean, there's in some sense like a kind of a complicity between these two things anyway. As I mentioned earlier, the things that most of the kind of the fairly soft far right organizations, uh, things like the DFLA in the UK, Democratic Football Ads Alliance, uh, which of course follows the Football Ads Alliance, which is apparently not democratic enough. These kind of organizations, what they're actually arguing for broadly it's just what the UK government already does, right? It's like, we think that Muslims should be policed in this more aggressive way. That's their platform. And it's like, well, that's what already happens. <laughs> so what are you really arguing for that is different from the function of the state? And so I think what, what the FBI example should reveal is not just this kind of sense in which there's a intrigue behind lots of these things. And there is an intrigue behind lots of these things. But what it should reveal, I think, to us as anti-fascists is just how in some ways banal and mundane and like quite normy lots of parts of the far right are. There are very few organizations as normy as the FBI, right? Like it is the organization in the US uh, that, at least on domestically, establishes like the norm of security, the norm of this kind of thing, more so than any other organization in the US, right? And so like there's, and, and so for the far right to have not only members that are involved in the FBI, but also in some ways often to be arguing for the same things as the FBI already does, just shows you that they are not this kind of insurgent, radical cultural force that have a you know devastating critique of the present order, but actually like very much at the kind of the burning, violent core of what that present order is actually like, and therefore they are they can be kind of um, you know not taken seriously as revolutionaries. I think that's that's quite an important kind of point about the way we address the far right. In the last week in Australia, we've seen a neo-Nazi group called the National Socialist Network exposed. Yeah. A number of its members have been publicly identified and uh, there's been, it's received uh, on 60 Minutes, something of a tabloid treatment, a lot of shock and horror has been expressed, but also inevitably uh, questions around prescription of the group as a terrorist organisation have emerged and it seems to be the case that in Australia on both the ruling coalition government and the Labor Party would seem to support some such uh, measure, although that's yet to be determined. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about, because I know this is covered in the book and in, on the podcast, I guess the role of the state in prescribing these groups and the ways in which the state, uh, in some respects, might frame its activities as being anti-fascist and what sorts of dangers or even opportunities do you think that affords um, you know, other anti-fascists? So with the UK in particular, because that's the example I'm most familiar with, the, the British state hadn't prescribed really any group um, aside from uh, they hadn't prescribed really any uh, any like right wing group 
um, aside from various Ulster uh, and unionist, unionist terrorist or para- paramilitary organisations. It had been uh, there'd been one section of organisations that was focused on the north of Ireland, and there was a lot of uh, kind of Muslim and Islam- Islamist groups. And it's really until the prescription of national action after the murder of uh, Joe Cox, where they kind of suddenly got a taste for for getting into the prescription of far right uh, organisations and groups. And and since then, we've seen a number of national actions kind of aliases and, uh, you know, spin-offs be prescribed. And recently, they prescribed The Base, uh, which is a group primarily kind of based in, in the US, but presumably had some users, uh, some kind of participants who were in the UK as well. And once I think once the state gets a, a kind of a taste for it, you know, like if they kind of see that this is like an acceptable way of extending uh, that kind of reach into various political movements, whether they're, you know, political movements we're like opposed to or or, or part of and um, then it will continue to do so and it will it will not take i'm i'm wary about and it's the classic kind of anarchist argument that i have is you know where you know if we kind of cheer on prescription of fascist groups and far-right groups and state intervention into those groups as well then how long does it take until you know the left has it gets looked at especially as you know the contradictions in our society are kind of increase and climate crisis continues and political action necessarily becomes more radical um, or will become more radical because that's how people have radical responses to radical situations you know what happens in five years time when uh, black lives matter is kind of even more intervened against we've we're already seeing in the states that can these kind of like um local police forces taking really extreme action against black lives matters organizers including people have ended up dead and things like this and you know, it's a slippery slope argument and it's a trite one and it's a kind of cliche one, but it's also a really good one. Like we want to be really careful about how we kind of, uh, how we kind of, we can't rely on, in my opinion, we can't rely on the state to come in, prescribe a group and arrest everyone and send them all to prison. That's I think the, the example of base is really important. Um, not just in the UK context, but also in Canada. So Canada recently prescribed three organizations in, in the same, I think, legislation. And of course, Canada, the UK and Australia are, Three countries with very tightly um, kind of similar legal traditions. So the example kind of makes sense, I think, for all three, uh, which is that they prescribed the base, which is a kind of uh, self-described nationalist prepper movement uh, for people uh, on the far right to get into prepping in various different ways. And of course, most of that means like arming yourself and becoming kind of a danger to anyone who uh, attempts to take away your land or anything like this. Um, that was the base. Atom Wotham, which was essentially a kind of a... Uh, uh, you mentioned the Order of the Nine Angles, right? Um, so they were kind of inspired by them in some ways, uh, but also kind of that was, uh, they were like, actually, no, I'm just memeing. After everyone was like, this is <laughs> very embarrassing. Why would you uh, subscribe to this organization? And so on. So there, there, there was kind of a, a complicated thing about Atomoffin, but it was unequivocally linked to multiple murders. I think seven at the last count. So um, there was kind of, I guess, like a reason for prescribing Atomoffin. But at the same time, the Canadian government prescribed the Proud Boys. And the Proud Boys are like a not a terrorist organization. Like the Proud Boys are a, a kind of a political drinking club, right? Um, who have been involved in political violence of quite like an expansive nature, but who have not made any terror plots as far as I'm aware. And who have not done, you know, not kind of acted in this like way that um, the other two groups have. And so I think the, what this tells us, what this example tells us is the state doesn't really know what it's doing when it's prescribing things. And so I think that lends credence to Alex's argument, which is that even if we think it's somewhat kind of paranoid, to uh, think that the state would kind of come after the left in the same way that it um, does for you know Islamist groups or for people on the, the kind of the explicitly terroristic far right, 
this example of the Proud Boys being proscribed as well, as if they were equivalent to Atom often, or as if they were equivalent to the base in some way, shows that the state doesn't really know what it's doing, and that, to be honest, like it's not that ridiculous that they would come after groups that were approximately as radical as the Proud Boys are on the left, of which there are some. So it's not uh, it's not out of the question. I can't help but uh, think of, uh, in Australia, the only one far-right group is, has been prescribed so far, which is Sonnenkrieg from the UK. Yeah. Yeah. And since they prescribed that group, uh, there hasn't been a single person who was been a member of that group so <laughs> it, it must be working <laughs> it's prophylactic no, no, prophylactic is that the right word yes prophylactic yeah. i feel like i'm going to read that comment in 20 years in my asio file with some sort of pointed comment from uh-huh. the agent in the book and also in your infuriating upcoming second book uh you talk about <laughs> you discuss this it annoyed, us. it annoyed us don't worry uh, <laughs> if, if if you suffered for our book we've suffered for our book <laughs> You discuss this concept of eco-fascism and you sort of break it down into a few different strands. I was wondering if you could tell us what those strands are. I think we've kind of hinted at it in various different ways already, um, but just kind of make it really explicit. The the contemporary far-right is not one unified thing. It makes sense, and we do in the book, to discuss the contemporary far-right in three different parts. I should say also there's a chapter uh, on the history of, of uh, nature politics on the far-right and there's a, there's a chapter on the future of nature politics on the far-right. Um, and those I'm uh, kind of I guess important, but like I'll get into the kind of the middle section of the book, which is just about the the contemporary situation. The contemporary far right is not one unifying thing, and it's not one unifying thing for very good historical reason. It's not just that the people happen to disagree, happen to hate each other, they happen to believe in things. It's not just that. It's also that the way that politics is constructed in the post Second World War era and the post war era just like organizes things like this. So the first tab thing is that there is a massive taboo for very obvious reasons. Most places, particularly in Europe and also in America, on any form of political violence. Uh, so that's just out the, out the window, particularly for the far right. It's like, you know, we can't have fascists doing, like, being brutally violent. Of course, this is a taboo that is not applied rigorously. There are loads of places, like, where people, the far right obviously does kill lots of people. The Greens from Massacre, for example, in America. And of course, yeah, and that's, that's, well, that's done by an organized group of people in the white power movements. But by and large, there is a taboo on political violence, on explicit, deadly political violence. What this means is that we get this first section, which is terrorists, basically. Because other groups, as they would have in the 1920s, 1930s, like the SA, for example, can't anymore go around and just like kill people, which is what the SA did, because that's not a part of political life anymore that will be tolerated. There has to be this kind of sloughing off of like the terroristic section, the, the deadly violence section. And therefore, we produce this terrorism segment. The middle section is that there is a there has been a collapse and then a re-emergence of what we might describe as mass associational forms, forms of political expression in society uh, broadly. In the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, these things are massively suppressed by forms of neoliberal government. So civil society is kind of shredded by neoliberalism. That's one of the main things it does. Uh, people are just not participating in society in the same level, the same extent they were in the post-war period, and they are definitely not doing it to the same extent that they were in the interwar period, um, where uh, things just quite basic things, clubs, meeting houses, societies, and so on, are just like much more dense. People are much more densely involved in society in that period than they are um, in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and noughties. The internet in some ways, like reconstructs that ability to do mass association. But it's not successfully absorbed by high politics, by the political parties, the Republicans, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not successfully absorbed by parties that we might think of as kind of borderline on the far right, like the Republican Party in the US. And therefore, there is this kind of open door for insurgent forms. That's not to say there aren't far right political parties. There definitely are. We talk about the different ways in which those parties operate. But what this gives you is a very clear three-part distinction. 
on the one hand, you have political parties, which take state power, which have been there for a long time. On the other hand, you have mass insurgent movements, mostly existing on the internet. And on the other hand, I guess you have three hands in this analogy, I'm not quite sure why. On on your third hand, you have um, terrorists who are the form of political deadly violence, which can't be absorbed into the other two because it would be taboo. These are all subject to massive historical change, right? So that's just how it is right now, or how it was, say, five years ago, or how it is three years ago. This could all change. It's in the unity of these three things, a political party, a mass movement, and deadly violence, that we get something we might describe as fascism. At the moment, there are pretty much no organizations in the world, apart from one, which at scale integrates all these three different parts. The organization that does that is the RSS, which is a paramilitary organization connected to the BJP, which is the ruling party in India. And it's a mass organization with a million members. uh, And it conducts uh, essentially its own policing operations of Muslims in India. Those have often been deadly. Those have often been uh, extremely violent. So in some sense, India is the place where we might think there's the kind of emergence of something that looks much more like classical fascism. But this is the three-part distinction, I think, that holds currently in the far right. And as I say, it's not historical. Sorry, it's not arbitrary. It's not just like kind of they they hate each other. They don't just disagree. There are good political reasons for why this split exists right now. And the thing we have to guard against is the conditions under which those three parts that I mentioned, political parties, mass movements, deadly violence, might be reintegrated. Because that is when... Yeah, that is when you have the possibility of fascism. The book is uh, concerned with uh, fascism, as you've described it, this combination of party movement and, and, and violence. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means in the context of uh, ecological collapse and what, if anything, that means in terms of modifying or adjusting anti-fascist or anti-eco-fascist approaches to these uh, questions? So with this kind of violence movement party kind of structure that we've um, or balance that we've we've explicated. Um, we're already seeing various kinds of environmental nature, uh, ecological politics emerge. A kind of prime example would be, in my opinion, the the Great Replacement Theory, which is you know central to a lot of identitarian movements, and it's explicitly linked in many ways to a kind of preservation of a of a, a particular land or a particular landscape. So in the UK we've seen like kind of the idealization of 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 British landscapes and we've seen kind of walks in nature and um, white life white lives matter banners um, unfurled at these places. And I think this is this is a is an interesting link that's happened and, and quite you know quite common across the history of the far right. And what we want to understand is as the climate crisis, you know, kind of intensifies and it's inevitably everything's going to get a lot worse. <laughs> everything's going to get much more um, horrible in the, in the coming decades. How will far right, how will the far right um, respond to that? Uh, a lot of their kind of responses have been in some degrees of denial in the, in the past few decades. And, and this is going to become untenable. And um, we're already seeing like, you know, um, if whether it's wildfires in Greece or Australia or, or California, West, West America or, or whatever. These things can't be particularly be denied anymore in any kind of realistic way. And we, we the, especially in our second book, we look at how these kind of things will be. How will a, very, a kind of a kind of far right nature politics, one based on domination, one based on uh, hierarchy, uh, how will that manifest in the right? And we look at the three kind of in the future section of the second book. We look at three kind of permutations of that based on different blocks of capital. We what we kind of argue is one of the main threats, aside from the far right, is a kind of intensification of of, of liberal 
uh, liberal authoritarianism. It's <laughs> a weird way of putting it, but like an intensification of borders, a globalization of borders as well, like much more expansive. Um, we see the Home Office in Britain like co-opting, and, we, and this is like, kind of modeled on Australia as well, is like co-opting islands off the territor- territory of the UK itself to house, in inverted commas, uh, asylum seekers. How will those inten- intensifications play into a far-right narrative, I, I think, very easily? Speaking of uh, liberal authoritarianism, uh, I think of, uh, is it Ishe Landa? who's written a book on the relationship between liberalism and fascism. Uh, it's the, the Apprentice's uh, Sorcerer is the title. It was published around 2012. Um, but it attempted to re-examine liberalism, um, and I think it also, to some extent, rests upon a distinction between economic and political liberalism and the ways in which, I guess, uh, liberal liberalism broadly conceived should not be understood as being antagonistic to fascism, but in many of its forms, especially historically in the 20th century and the 19th century, is actually conducive to the emergence of uh, fascism. And when you referred to the ways in which uh, the British state has begun to uh, adopt the model that the Australian state has put into place in terms of controlling population flows and excising territories, creating prison islands and so on. This is an example of a kind of a liberal or neoliberal logic working itself out. And so it it invites a closer examination of liberalism for its, uh, I guess, complicity in the uh, emergence of fascism. So the the way I link um, liberalism and fascism is basically based on Wendy Brown's book, uh, In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, where she discusses the ways in which, while I described earlier as the shredding, of the uh, civic kind of society. Um, this is the subject of a previous book, Undoing the Demos. The ways in which that kind of shredding of society, that atomization of people, produces forms of what she describes as marketization and moralization. That is, markets are moralized, markets are fundamentally good, and morals are marketized. Um, that is, they're kind of tradable objects. And what this means is that the things, the different kinds of different kind of beliefs or different kinds of moral, ways of ordering society, rather, different kinds of norms, have different values, uh, as in like monetary values, they can be ascribed. And the thing with the highest monetary value in uh, liberalism uh, becomes all the very conventional forms of morality that we associate with reactionary uh, forces when they are kind of most emphatically stated. So, for example, things like um, the absolute unity of the family, the absolute kind of fundamentalness of like heterosexual relationships, gender norms, and so on. And because these are just like the ways in which a society can organize itself, when it doesn't have a large-scale civic society that can do robust debates, can do uh, kind of like collective involvement in politics, or what I described earlier as mass association, in the situations where we have uh, a lack of mass association and therefore have these kind of atomized people, the way they relate to each other has to be through these conventions, through these like deeply uh, rooted kind of norms and so on. She has a much more elegant discussion than I just gave there. Uh, that wasn't a very good summary. But that's what the way in which I think of the two things being related. It should be said that... This is not a connection between liberalism and fascism. This is a connection between liberalism and the far right. Um, and that's quite an important distinction. Fascism has historically been only possible in moments when the population at large has been mobilized by politics, for politics, in situations without hegemonic uh, projects. Um, so, for example, interwar Germany is uh, of the, the obvious example, uh, but also post-war, post-First World War Italy and so on. So the, it's... So in some ways, like what the internet does in this situation is radically accelerate the process of kind of re-politicization by using the morals and m- markets logic of 
um, that has been developed uh, in the preceding decades, 70s, 80s, 90s, and so on. So the the the, the, the process is is kind of intricate and complicated, and um, I think different in different places. The one more place where you might say it's, it's it's most clearly expressed is in Brazil, right? Brazil has this kind of marketized moralism, um, and the way, for example, that Bolsonaro is related to like the indigenous population of Brazil to treat them as people who are two different things simultaneously. So the way this is where he talks about indigenous populations. And this is relates back to ecofascism, because of course the uh, the, the you know, Amazon is essential for climate change to be uh, prevented. It has to be not chopped down. Um, but also uh, the way in which like land and territory and so on are related to by these people um, is very different in the case of Brazil. So the way there are two ways he, he talks about them. The first way is to say, these people, these indigenous people, they don't understand what they have. They're sitting on some of the richest minerals, territory, you know, the best logging, the best kind of cattle farm. They don't understand what they have. They don't really understand it. If they were just to sell us, the Brazilian government, their land, they would make so much money <laughs> and they would be so wealthy. They would enter into society. They could be real Brazilians if they only sold us this land. Um, because, of course, the Brazilian constitution has various protections for indigenous populations. And so in this sense, we get about a recapitulation of in a neoliberal form of this kind of initial like Christianization colonial attitude that the uh, settlers had in Brazil to the indigenous population. Right? They're there to Christianize them, they're to humanize them, to bring them into civilization. Okay, well, now the mechanism of bringing people into civilization is through the market. You sell us your thing, that makes you a real person. And so in some sense, this is the kind of the crux of the, the complicity between these two things. We get colonial forms of power in Brazil mixed with neoliberal forms of power in Brazil. And they're expressed simultaneously um, through, for example, the figure of Bolsonaro. Yeah, so I think that's how the kind of two things are related. I suppose, finally, there's discussion about uh, metapolitics and, and cultural questions in the text and, and also in the podcast, and, and some kinds of uh, considerations given to anti-fascist strategy and tactics. If there's some kind of uh, potentially hopeful note to end upon. Um, <laughs> do, do you think there's any, um, have, have you been inspired by various forms of resistance that have been expressed in the anti-fascist domain? Are there ways and means that are being developed currently that you think uh, might actually contribute to, yeah, I guess, uh, digging a grave for fascism and of course, capitalism? Yeah, we, we kind of look at that and uh, we, look, we talk about that a little bit in the conclusion and in our metapolitics chapter as well. And I think um, the, the the point about metapolitics and these kind of cultural forms of uh, viral propaganda, however you want to describe them, they're not like particularly, or they shouldn't, they uh, they aren't really like particularly like the preserve of the far right. And uh, I, I see a, a kind of a really hopeful moment in the building up of a kind of vibrant left online culture that, but that translates onto into real life in quote-unquote commas, organising in move, social movements, in uh, radical unions, unions. And we're seeing, um, I'm not too familiar with uh, the Australian situation, but in the UK we're seeing a, a real building of kind of radical unions that are uh, particularly built in opposition to these kind of platform platform capitalist con uh, companies like uh, Deliveroo and Just Eat and these delivery uh, takeaway uh, companies and uh, built a great amount of power amongst the workforce in a workforce that, you know, would have you would have thought it would be the most atomized, the most kind of uh, separate from each other, and these unions are, are are really pushing back against that. And I think uh, Corbynism is also, although I, I was never on the Corbyn train in any particular way, I think it points to the the, the kind of desire or the kind of will to be building uh, new forms of 
politics that doesn't speak to or doesn't have to be mediated through a big mainstream media companies and newspapers and can instead be mediated through them, each other and themselves. And I think that that's a moment of hope for me as well. Um, we, what we try and emphasize is that the way to, the way to, in many ways, the anti-fascist way to fight against these metapolitics and fascism in general is, is not only to counter the, the content of the far right. And in many ways, countering it on a factual basis is, is a kind of wrong way to go because you get dragged into their, the, and the argument on their terms. But it's also to build a vibrant left as well. And that is an equally anti-fascist thing to do, in my opinion. I think the hope, the hopeful hope that I take is that there are very few effective far right movements. Some of them are really terrifying. Some of them are really are in power. Some of them are really disastrous. But there are, there aren't that many of them. And I think this speaks mostly to the success of anti-fascism as a collection of tactics. There are lots of groups that would have been much more successful had it not been for anti-fascists. Unfortunately, the problem is, in part, is you get what's called the prevention paradox in public health. Right? So you have this in, uh, maybe having it in Australia now, with this kind of wave of COVID. It happened in Germany in the initial thing, in the initial um, uh, lockdowns in 2020, where basically like there weren't very many cases in Germany. They did a lockdown. The cases went down. Very few people died in the first wave. Well, not very few people fewer than other countries in Europe. And the response to this of the German population, by and large, was to say, oh, well, that wasn't really necessary then. You didn't really need to do that. And anti-fascism suffers from exactly the same problem, which is that because anti-fascism has actually been very successful as a movement for the last 70 years, it's been very, very good at suppressing the far right since the, since the Second World War, essentially, in most of its forms, not all of its forms, most of its forms. Though, people think, oh, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> you don't need to do that. <laughs> but of course, it's only because that anti-fascists have been continuously vigilant and continuously have managed to suppress the far right in various different ways, that we've got a situation where we can imagine a world in which the far right is not a dominant political force. And indeed, for most of our lives, the far right has not been a dominant political force. So I think I take, I take hope from that, from that fact. The other thing I take hope from is uh, the existence of massive anti-racist movements, which are not anti-fascist movements. I think we shouldn't confuse the two because they have different tactics, different objects, different targets, and so on. But I think I take a lot of hope from the genuinely enormous level of support that, for example, Black Lives Matter received in 2020. Not because it is directly related to anti-fascism, but because it shows the development of what um, uh, Shane Burley calls resistant society, right? which is all these kind of proliferation of different ways in which people get together in order to resist the uh, conditions under which they are made to live. So I think it's, it's a combination of these two facts that uh, yeah, it gives me hope. Well, that's all we've got time for on the radio, but we'll have more on the podcast, which you can check out at 3cr.org.au slash Pasaran. You can check out 12 Rules for What anywhere you get your podcasts, and the book is called The Post-Internet Far Right. Sam and Alex, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This has been Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. Thank you. You may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by, letting the water hold me down. Letting the days go by, water flowing underground into the blue the money's gone once in a lifetime water flowing underground and you may ask yourself how do i work this 
you may ask yourself, where is that large automobile? And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful house. And you may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. Letting the days go by, let the water hold me down. Letting the days go by, water flowing underground. Into the blue again, after the money's on. Once in a lifetime, water flowing underground. Same as it ever was. 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 Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. <laughs> the Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the struggles that made us post a design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. For the struggle. 